And then this morning, I, I've had on my heart, I, some people call it an intercessor heart, where God allows you to participate in the pain of someone else. You can pray for them and hold them up. And my distinct impression this morning, the heaviness of my heart is that there's someone here or some persons here who are very sad. And I don't know, I don't have the information of the details of, of what your world's about, but this isn't just a little depression. This is a, a very heavy thing. It feels like your world's falling apart and you're in a nightmare. And the word is that God has not forgotten you. Whatever you experience, whatever, whatever it feels like right now, God has not forgotten you. And if all the ordinary things don't bring comfort to your life, be okay with that because the Lord is still with you. Look for him in the darkness. And try to sense in your pain his arms around you. That's all I have to say. Last week, we talked about, in our continuing study with prayer, about the, the need for honesty in prayer, the need for us to be straightforward with God and the value of giving God a snapshot of our life as we are, not what should be there, but what in fact is there. We focus mainly on telling God the little things that concern us, the ordinary things, the everyday things, because if it concerns us, if it's important to us, and we're important to God, then it's important to God. And I want to continue that train of thought this morning by talking about being honest with God, but not with regard to the small things of life, but life in its extremities. The crisis situations of life. This is the prayer of forsakenness, what's sometimes called the prayer of forsakenness or the prayer of desperation, or you might even call it the prayer, which is a scream. And thankfully, most of us, most of the time, aren't in this kind of a situation. Our lives aren't in this sort of pain. You may wonder why you take a sermon out to talk about something that at any given moment, most of the people aren't going to be going through. But I want to do that for several reasons. First, I really feel like there are a few here that are going through exactly what I'm talking about this morning. And if the sermon is just for you, if, if no one else got anything out of it, but you got God's word for you, it would be worth preaching. The second thing is that while we may not be going through a situation like this right now, most of us have to some degree in the past, and most of us will to some degree in the future. And the worst thing about going through an experience, a crisis experience, where it seems like your world is falling apart, the worst aspect of it is that you feel totally alone. Because we don't talk about this stuff very much. We need to talk about it at least sometimes periodically so that you know that when you go through this situation, you're not abnormal and it's not your fault. The third thing is this. We need to talk about the prayer of desperation, the prayer of forsakenness, because though we may not be going through this situation, and maybe we won't in the near future, we will know people who are. And God, if, if we are open to it, God will lead us to deal with people who are in crisis situations, life in the extremities. One of the areas that's been my observation, one of the areas where Christians seem to be uniquely bad at is in dealing with situations for which there are no appropriate words, situations that are very, very messy, situations that you have no ability to fix, nothing even really to say. We're awkward. We don't know what to do. It doesn't fit because we've never talked about it. We don't deal with that. For, so for that reason, I want to talk about what is usually not talked about, life in the extremities, life in the crisis situation. 
There's several reasons why I don't think we talk about this much, and I want to confront some of those. One thing is this. Christianity is a joyful thing. To know the Lord is joy. And the Holy Spirit gives a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. And there's power and there's peace and there's life and there's so much to celebrate. And there's a need for us to come together. And I think on a weekly basis, just enter into celebration and lift up the Lord. That's what Christianity for most people most of the time is about. And so it's appropriate that most of the time we talk on the up. And we celebrate. But there's a negative side to that. If all we do is celebrate and if all we do is talk positive, then when you go through your nightmare situation, when it's, when it's your diver, divorce or the death of your child, you all of a sudden feel like you don't belong. You're not part of the happy people. You're not part of the happy club. You can't clap your hands and stamp your feet and shout like all the others are doing. And it's good that they're doing it, but you feel indicted because you can't do it because you've been conditioned to think that Christianity is all happiness. We need to talk about the other side of things, at least periodically. A second thing is this. We like things safe. We like things secure. We like things neat. We like things packaged. We like things black and white. And we don't like things too much up in the air with too much ambiguity. There's too much fogginess. But when you talk about life in the extremities, life in the crisis situations, you're talking about all ambiguity, where nothing seems to be very clear and things are all screwed up and nothing makes a whole lot of sense. And we don't like that. That's why we're so awkward with it. We immediately try to impose a structure on it, to make sense out of it, to fix it, to clean it up. But again, the downside of that is that when your life gets in the crisis situation that is beyond your control and doesn't make a whole lot of sense and things are foggy, you again feel like it's your fault, that you're indicted. Something's wrong with you because you can't go along with the ordinary structural theological box that most people have. Your world doesn't fit. So you feel indicted. We need to talk about life in the extremities. The third thing is this. I, we don't talk about it much, I think, for this reason. It's my observation that many times... We evangelical types, my dad used to say, you, you born-again types, we sometimes think that Christianity is sort of a product that we got to sell, or Christ is a product we got to sell. It's kind of a, a consumer view of Christianity, and so we always need to be on the on. We always need to be selling our product, which is Christianity, selling it to each other and selling it to the world. And when we buy into that kind of mentality, we also buy into this sort of thinking, and it's a consumer way of thinking that you don't talk about your product in the way it doesn't work. You talk about the way it does work. And so we like to talk about the way Christianity works. And we talk about the, the victories and the miracles and the changed lives and the, and the marriages that were put back together and, and the way God miraculously intervened and changed people's lives and attitudes and what have you. We like to talk about that kind of stuff. And it's appropriate to talk about that kind of stuff. And most of the time, celebrate that kind of stuff. But we don't like to talk much about what it looks like when it doesn't seem to work. Seems like it's an indictment on our product, and, and, so we, and we feel like we have to defend God. What do you do when the prayer isn't answered, and the kid isn't healed, and the marriage isn't put back together again, and the person does die of cancer? The child runs away. What do you do in those kind of situations? And if we never talk about that, if we never say it out loud, if we never confront it out loud, then when you go through a situation like that, you feel it's 
Because you're not working. The product everyone says works all the time, but it doesn't seem to be working for you right now, so it must be your fault. And sometimes Christians say that out loud. It's your fault. There must be something wrong with your life. And the last thing you need when you're going through the crisis situation is for someone to say, it's your fault, your lack of faith, your sin, something's in your life. All the things that Job's friends told him. The point this morning that I want to bring across is that there are times where There are times, let's say it out loud, how honest can we be here this morning? There are times where it's going to feel like the product doesn't work. And there are going to be times where the the ordinary status joy that Christians usually have and the victory that they have, it just doesn't seem to fit your life right now. And there's times where the security that, that Scripture usually gives us, it doesn't seem to fit right now. What you've got to know is that though you're experiencing the, the extremity of the crisis situation you're in, maybe outside the bounds of what we can theologically process, and maybe outside the bounds of what we can ordinarily deal with, and maybe that the church and friends are very little comfort, you've got to know that you're not outside the bounds of God's love. Your situation may be too big and too complex for human beings and our theology to handle, but it's not too big for God to handle. He's with you there. Let me, let, me, let me share with you an experience that I had. I, I've had several experiences in my life where I kind of went into a tailspin of a crisis situ- situation. Let me tell you about one of them. I was, in a, I, I was the uh, assistant pastor of a church out east. And uh, pastor visitation, a woman in our church came and she said that her, sister, her sister's boy had just gotten involved in a terrible accident. She didn't know the details of it, but her sister was very sad and, and had kind of lost her faith and was railing against God and was in a fit of despair. And, and this woman thought that I was just so upbeat and I was, you know, just, just so on and, and I was so anointed. She said, you can go and, and bring joy to, to them. They, they, they need a good word from you to comfort them and, and to begin to lift them up and restore their faith. And I was young and foolish and inexperienced, so I believed her. I thought, oh, okay, I, I can do that. So I went to the hospital with my... My commission, my commission was to be the joy giver, the one who's going to bring the situation back to where it ought to be and bring victory into their lives and bring joy into their lives. I went to this hospital and looked up this person's name. The little kid was in a children's, the critical care unit of a children's ward. And I'd never been to the critical care unit of a children's ward. And it was brutal. Just walking through those halls, my little joy-giving agenda began to be chipped away. As I was looking for this boy, I look in there and see this kid, and that kid, and this kid. And it was ripping me apart even on the way to the room. And I finally found the, the, the hospital bed that this kid was in. And I walked in there, and there's this mother. Lord, you're going to have to help me get through this. There's this mother who had the most despairing look I've ever seen on a woman's face. She's dead. She was staring out the window blank. She'd been there for three days, just staring. She didn't acknowledge me coming into the room because there's a situation you can get in, a crisis situation that can be so severe. Social propriety means nothing to you. And I walked in there, and here's this woman looking out the window. And next to her was her little boy. (sighs) There's this little kid, beautiful little kid, and his big body brace. And he just had slipped off of a slide. Just one little slip of the foot. And he fell down off his slide. And he broke his neck. And now he couldn't, 
move his hands and he couldn't move his legs. Doctor said that the break was so severe he'd never move his hands and move his legs. And I went there, the joy giver. And I remember trying to be strong and trying to be full of faith and saying some things. And I don't even remember what I said, but what I do remember is that every vowel, every consonant that came out of my mouth sounded profoundly stupid. I just went, bam, bam. Look on the bright side of things, or I don't know what I said. Trying to give a little encouragement. It sounded so dumb, and I've seen it a lot of times since then. Because there are some situations where you just got to shut up. I didn't know that then. I prayed with her and the little boy. In the back of my mind, I was hoping for an Acts chapter 3 where Peter would say, rise up in the name of Jesus and walk. Then I could be the joy giver, but it didn't happen. I left. That lady's faith was in a major tailspin and sent my faith into a tailspin. Maybe some of you have been there before. Nothing happened to me. My life was going fine, but it's just what this did to my brain, my, my, my theological way of thinking. All of a sudden, my ordinary, it's like my Christianity was too small. It didn't fit this world. It, I couldn't find a nice niche for it. All of a sudden, God seemed very distant. Have you gone through situations like that where God seems absent? You all of a sudden notice it. It's like he all of a sudden withdraws. Where are you? Where are you? The psalmist asked that a lot. Where are you? What happened? What did I do? And you pray, and maybe you fast, and you read your Bible, and you do all the ordinary things, but nothing seems to work. Maybe you go around saying that it works because you're supposed to say that it works. Everyone believes the product works, but right now it's not working for you. You feel forsaken. You, you feel numb. You feel numb. You just don't have any feelings. And you go to the service, and everyone else is rejoicing as they should be rejoicing. But oh, that just doesn't mean a whole lot to you. And the world seems like a very dark place, a very foggy place in these crisis situations. They don't happen often, thank God, but when they happen, they happen hard. And Christianity, I want to be real honest here. And I bet, I bet you've, many of you have at least sensed this sometimes. This experience is far more common than we usually say because we don't talk about it. So everyone thinks that it's so, so rare. Actually, we go through this more often than, than we admit. But Christianity seems very shallow. All of a sudden, it's like you go there and the worship and, and the people, it all seems kind of shallow. Not bad, it's okay, but it just doesn't seem to have any kind of depth to it. And maybe you even talk it out with some of your Christian friends and it just doesn't seem like they can, they can relate to what you're going through. In the same way that my words that I spoke to this woman fell flat on the floor because they couldn't relate to where she was at, that's what Christianity feels like. It seems kind of shallow. All the church hype, all of that kind of stuff just doesn't seem to ring very true. The other thing that I discovered, and maybe you've discovered it too, is that many times we, because we like the happy stuff, and that's a good thing to like, and because we like the security stuff, and that's a good thing to like, we can sometimes weave our Christianity together around a lot of cliches. Around a lot of cliches. A cliche, I would define as something that, something that is true, but it's taken out of its right context and applied in a wrong context. And so instead of being healing, it can be wounding. There isn't a verse that's more true and more profound and more wonderful and more worth celebrating than the, the scripture, all things work together for the better for those who love the Lord. 
But you can take that verse out of its right context with its right meaning and apply it in a way that can be absolutely vicious. To say to this woman, this, this mother of this paralyzed kid, hey, let's not get too down now. Let's keep it up. Let's keep your chin up because, you know, all things work together for the better. That's right. The world's a better place for your kid laying in that hospital bed. Better, better place because he can't move his arms. Rejoice in everything. Give thanks. If you believe, you shall receive. God always answers the prayer of the righteous man. You could say that to her. And do you think it's going to comfort? What she'll hear, what she'll hear is this. Maybe what she heard from me was this. Oh, so it's my fault. It's my fault. I lack faith. That's why my kid's laying in the hospital bed. I got sin in my life. That's why my kid's laying in the hospital bed. Or maybe it's my little 10-year-old boy's fault that he's laying in the hospital bed. And is it Kareen Ersted's fault, her lack of faith, or her mother's lack of faith that caused her to be murdered? And it was a Jacob Wetterling's fault, lack of faith, that caused him to be kidnapped? And is every kid that's in a wheelchair right now there because of a lack of faith? And is every kid that ever stars, or every adult that ever stars, or every nightmare that any person goes through, is that a lack of faith on their part, some sin in their life? And are you who have life going so well, is that because you have such a wonderful faith? I'm sorry. Right now, your true statement just doesn't fit. It doesn't help put my world back together. It doesn't bring any kind of comfort, any kind of life. It falls like an empty cliche on my feet, and it only serves to further wound me. There are times where even true things can be said inappropriately and can wound. There's a time where the only appropriate thing to do is to shut up. Well, I met a woman one time in a hospital bed. This, again, was a relative of someone in my church, a mother of someone in, in this church, and I went to visit her. She was dying of cancer, a middle-aged woman dying of cancer, cancer all over her body. She went to a church where the pastor was a pastor of cliches. That's, that's the only message that ever came out. And the variety that it had in the case of this woman was, was, was the, the belief, the belief that if you're a child of God, no harm should come to you. No poverty should come to you. No sickness should come to you. You shouldn't die before a certain ripe old age. The cliches were always, you know, the Lord is the one who heals all of our diseases. By his stripes we are healed. And it, by your mouth you are justified. And by your mouth you are condemned. So if you just start talking right and believing right, you're not going to have this cancer. In fact, this cancer is simply a symptom of the devil. You're not really sick at all. And I go to visit her and try to talk with her, and she was in such a state of denial. Well, I'm not sick. I don't have, oh, the doctors say I have cancer, but that's because they're influenced by demonic powers. And I'm only going to this hospital because my daughter thinks I should, but I'm not dying of cancer. I don't acknowledge that. I'm fine. I tried to talk with her a little bit about maybe coming to grips with what appears to be the case. She wouldn't have anything to do with it. In time, over a process of six months, I visited her periodically, and, and her condition worsened and worsened and worsened, and she still denied and denied and denied because she felt indicted for having this cancer. It was her fault. So she couldn't acknowledge it. Finally, two weeks before she died, her body was just completely raked, and, and it, it no longer was possible for her to say, I don't have cancer. She did have cancer. And her pastor told her that the reason she had cancer and was dying, and it wasn't at all God's will, uh, you know, she had a nice little theological box and understood God very well. And the reason why this woman was going through this is because there was a lack of faith and sin in her life. And the same sin, this pastor said, the same sin that is, is, is causing her to not be healed is also causing her to not be saved. And the woman died, 
two weeks later, in the arms of her daughter, and her last words were, My God, my God, I'm going to hell. A believing lady died a nightmarish death. You see, there are situations where we can take things that are true, our ordinary worldview, our ordinary theology, our ordinary religious stuff, and it's all true and it's all valid in the right and proper context. But when you're going through life at the extremes, when you're in the crisis situation, it just doesn't seem to fit. And when we try to make it fit, when we try to force a, a, a sensible grid over the messy situation of people's lives, we end up indicting them, hurting them, blaming them. This is what happened to Job. The book of Job, I read Job Wednesday and Thursday, and I think it's just the most profound book in the world. Job's friends were forever doing this. You know the story of Job. For reasons that had nothing to do with him, for reasons that were invisible to us, for reasons that it took place in heaven. That's the whole point of the book. For cosmic reasons that had nothing to do with him, he went through an incredible tragedy. He lost his house, he lost his farm, he lost his cattle. And then he lost his entire family, except for his wife, who became very bitter. Lost all of his kids in a terrible storm. And then he lost his health. Boils breaking out all over his body. A terrible disease. And at first, he has got three friends. They're Eliphaz, Biliad, and Zophar. And they come and visit him. And at first, they do the right thing. They, they do what I should have done in that, in that room with the mother and, and, and the paralyzed child. They sit. They just sit. In the Bible, it says in Job chapter 2 that they just were quiet. That No one said a word. They entered into Job's suffering. But then things got a little bit messy. Job began to talk. He began to express what was there on the inside. He began to pray. The book of Job can be read like a book of prayer. Because Job starts to talk to God. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 that Paul read earlier, he, said, he finally gets to the point. He's, he's done trying to be polite, trying to be cautious about this. And finally he says, I loathe my very life. And therefore, I'm going to say what is real. I'm going to say what I'm experiencing. I'm going to say what I'm going through. No holds barred. Now I'm going to be honest. And he begins to rage. He begins to rage. God, do you delight in what you're doing to me? Does this make you happy what I'm going through? He begins to speak true things. His righteous friends can't take it. This is assaulting to their theological ears. They are the theologians of cliches, and they begin to speak cliches at Job in one way or another. Job, they first say they indict him for speaking honestly. God doesn't indict him, but, but, but they do. To Job, you shouldn't be talking like this. Watch how you speak to the Almighty One. He might get ticked off and even worse in your situation. And then they begin to ooze forth with cliches. First comes Eliphaz. Don't you know, Job, that all things work together for the better for those who love the Lord? Don't you know, Job, there's a reason for everything? Don't you know that God sits on his throne? He works all things after his counsel of his own will. Don't you know that he knows what is best? Don't be voicing this complaint. Don't be, you, this isn't a prayer that you're praying. It's an insult. Get your act together, Job. You used to be so righteous. You used to be so pious. What happened? Job responds in chapters 12 and chapters 13. Like one in his situation would respond. He goes, oh, such wisdom. How profound of you. Eliphaz, so no doubt wisdom will die when you die, he says. 
And then he says in verse 12, in, in chapter 12, and this is a profound thing, he says, you know what, Eliphaz, I'll tell you what wisdom is. You think you're so wise. It's so easy for you to stand up there in the stadium and watch me in the lion's den and hurl out all these nice little theological cliches. But here's what wisdom would be if you'd shut your mouth. That'd be wisdom. Just shut your mouth. Eliphaz is done speaking, so Zophar comes in. He says, how dare you, Job? How dare you? rile God in this fashion. Don't you believe in the power of prayer? Don't you believe that God is the one who answers all the prayers of the righteous? He'll never leave the righteous forsaken. Their seed is never all begging for bread. Believe in a miracle today. Believe and you shall receive. Cachets, throwing them out there. You know, and what you find when you read the book of Job is that all the things that these three friends say are true. Profound theology. But a true thing applied in the wrong context can be heard as a lie. So Job, if, if you're going through this, since we know God is just, and since we know the product works, and since we know the product makes people happy, if you're depressed and you're down and out and you're going through this, it must be your fault. There's sin in your life. Job says, Elif, Zophar, will you get your head out of the ground? What, are you living in a different world than I'm living in? Because I don't see the world quite like you see it. Look around. I see a lot of righteous people forsaken. And I don't know what to do with your theological truth right now, but the reality is a lot of righteous people are forsaken. And I see a lot of the righteous suffer. And I see a lot of the wicked prosper. Maybe, just maybe, Zophar, God's a little bit bigger than your brain, and maybe the word's a little more complex than your cliches. Maybe. Wisdom for you would be to shut up. Then Billiad chirps in. Billiad really is vicious. Billiad says... Job, I can't believe you used to be such a right. What happened, Job? What happened? You used to be so righteous and so pious and an example for the whole community. And here you are railing at God. And you're just making the situation worse for yourself. Don't you know, Job? And here comes the cliches, the theological profundity. What goes around comes around. God never shuts one door without opening another door. In every thorn bush, there's a rose. And behind every storm, there's a rainbow. After every storm, there's a rainbow. And you got to let go and let God. You got to look on the bright side of life. Job finally says, Billy Ed concludes that again, it's your fault. Something wrong with you. Job finally says, Your truths are to me lies. That's how I hear them. And what you're saying is not at all even addressing the situation I'm in because you're too busy justifying your view of God and securing your own theology and making sure that your world makes sense. You're too busy doing that to enter into my world. And you call yourself my friends, but right now you're my enemies. You speak for your own sake, not for my sake. And Job rages on and on and on. Why have you forsaken me? He prays the prayer of the scream, the prayer of abandonment, the prayer of, the prayer of pain. It's a prayer that is found throughout the Bible. It's not just limited to Job. David, in 45 of the Psalms, in 45 of the Psalms, David complains to God, Where are you, God? Why do you cause my enemies to prosper over me? Why do you forsake the righteous? Where? Why? How? Who? What's going on? Questions, complaints, the prayer of pain in his gut, honest prayers. And they're inspired enough to be involved and in, to be included in the Bible. The prayer that we saw last week, Jeremiah prayed. God, why have you seduced me? Why have you led me astray? What kind of trick have you played on me? The prayer of the Elijah who feels forsaken and wants suicide. The prayer of Jonah who wants suicide. The prayer of Moses who feels forsaken. And the prayer of our Savior on the cross of Calvary. 
when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, when, when, when they died on the cross, when you died on the cross, you died of suffocation. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you couldn't hold yourself up and your lungs would collapse. And, and to, the only way you could get air would be to push up on the stake that went through your ankles and take a deep breath and then sink down again and then push up again. And that would, ri that, that would rip the, the stake up further and it was excruciating till finally they couldn't do it anymore and they'd suffocate. Words and breath were very, very precious when you're dying on the cross. You didn't say stuff very often. That's why Jesus only spoke a few words. But one of the words he spoke, one of the prayers that he gave when he talked to the Father was he pushes himself up on that stake, grasps one of his final breaths, and he takes the time to say this. He takes the time to complain, to cry out what he's really feeling, to express his honesty before God. Why have you forsaken me? And I'm sure if Eliphaz or Biliad or Zophar was around, any of Job's friends, they would have said, now, now Jesus, this isn't quite theologically accurate, is it? I mean, you know, I thought, you know, you're not setting a very good example, especially since these Roman soldiers just mocked you for being forsaken, and now you're legitimizing their complaint. Do you, you know that all things work together? God you know, works all things after the counsel of his own will. The Bible says he'll never forsake you or leave you. True, 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 true. But in this situation, what's more true than theological accuracy is the gut, heart, honesty of Jesus who cries out to God, why? Who cries out to God, why? There are some situations that we can get in where the only thing to do is to scream. And maybe you've been there before. Or maybe you've known people who have been there before. I can't believe that my kid's not around anymore. I, I, did someone here lose a kid recently or something? Because that keeps on coming to me as I'm talking here. I can't believe that it's my child that's gone. I can't believe that it's my kid that's been paralyzed. I can't believe it. I never thought it would happen to me. Never thought it would happen to me. I can't believe that my marriage ended. We were going to live happily ever after. What happened to all the dreams? They're gone. I can't believe it happened to me. I can't believe my kid ran away. I can't believe I'm strung out on drugs. I can't believe I'm pregnant. I can't believe my world's coming to an end. I can't believe all my friends have forsaken me. I can't believe how alone I feel right now. I can't believe it. I didn't think it would ever happen. It happens to other people, but how could it happen to me? And in those kind of situations, you can't see, you can't see the, the tip of your nose. It's just too dark. And the only thing you can cry out is why. And what I want you to know this morning is that that is a legitimate prayer. That is a legitimate prayer. It's a necessary prayer. And it's the beginning of a healing prayer. After 39 chapters of ranting and raving and reviling God, this is how the Lord responds. Now, the Lord had a lot of things to teach Job. And he's got a lot of things to teach us. But first comes the screen. And he says... Here in chapter 42, after the Lord had talked to Job, he said these things. Listen to this now. He said to Eliphaz, the Tiamite, Mr. Cliché, Mr. Theological Accuracy, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have, you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Everything they said was theologically accurate, and everything Job said was really theologically inaccurate. But one came out of a heart of honesty, a gut. The other one came out of a head that wouldn't participate in a friend's pain. We said last week, I'll say it again, the criteria of a valid prayer is the heart that goes into it. It's got to come out of honesty. It's out of situations like this. If you're going through this or, or you have gone or shall go through this, 
these situations can be, when you keep the line of communication open and cry out to God what is true and what is honest, these situations can be used of God for the better. You can't say that to the person when they're in the middle of it, but hindsight, you can see what good came out of it. St. John of the Cross, theologians have talked about this kind of thing throughout church history. They call it the dark night of the soul or the cloud of unknowing or the desert of the heart. And St. John of the Cross in the 6th century says this, you go through the dark night of the soul for this reason. God purifies your faith by seeking to destroy it. Harsh. I don't think he means that literally, but when you're in that situation, it looks like God is seeking to destroy your faith, but that's how your faith is purified. You are weaned from superficial Christianity and superficial relationship with God. When you go through one of these experiences, when you come out on the other side, you still like to clap your hands and jump up and down and dance and sing for joy. You still like all of that. You still like the happy music and the fun fellowship and you're grateful for the whole thing. But you're not addicted to it. Somehow the flashy stuff of Christianity doesn't impress you so much. You may thank God for nice, wonderful buildings, but somehow it doesn't impress you that much. And some, you're, 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 you're wowed by how God can do great things and, and build a, a religious community, a community of faithful so quickly, but somehow you know that that's not what's really central. And the flashy preachers and the flashy music and all the other glitz of Christianity seems to just take on a little less importance because you know what is really important. And even your own relationship with God You're still thankful for the feeling of joy that you get and the feeling of the presence of God you get. But you learn through situations like this how to love God because he's God. Love God more than your feeling about God. You learn how not to be addicted to the religious buzz, the religious warm feeling that you get. You don't live off of that. You're thankful when it comes. It's good. But you get to the point where Job finally got, where you say, though he slay me, Yet I will serve him. He's God. And whether I feel it or not, whether I'm numb in my feelings or overflowing with feelings, that's still going to be true. This morning, if you're going through this situation, and there are at least a few people here who I really believe are, say what you need to say. Say what you need to say and just keep the lines of communication open. Pound on his chest if you need to pound at his chest and cry and scream. You're, just know that you're pounding and you're pushing. Can't, can't make him go away because his arms are stronger than your arms and he's going to win. But right now, if that's what you need to do, do it. But in the midst of your darkness, know this also, that he's there. You cannot sink so low that you'll outrun God. The Bible says that if you make your bed in, in hell, and sometimes we are the ones who make our own bed in the nightmare that we're in. Maybe you did bring it upon yourself. But even if you make your own bed in hell, know that he is there. Maybe you can't feel it now, you can't see it now, you can't sense it now. But just know that it is true and that's not a cliche. And know that even if other Christians can't be of any comfort and the church can't be of any comfort and it doesn't make any sense theologically and you can't even read the Bible and have it nurture you, know that Jesus Christ is there. It's not a matter of feeling or sight or perception. It's just a matter of truth. And know that in time, it will end. It will end, and sometimes that's all you got to go on. And for those of us, I want to conclude with just this word, who aren't in this situation, but will know or will meet people who are in this situation. Remember this. This has got to be a place where it's okay to shout for joy, and it's okay to celebrate to the hilt, and it's okay to cut loose in the happiness of Jesus 
This is a place where it's okay to do this, but it must also in some context be the kind of place where it's okay to shout just as loud in pain if that's what needs to happen. We don't want this to be a church of a Zophar and Biliad and Eliphaz, a church of the happy people where those who are forsaken or feel forsaken don't feel like they belong. And when you know someone who is going through a situation like this, surround them. But don't surround them with words. Surround them with your love. Surround them by being there. Enter into their heart. Ask God to give you a piece of their pain so that you know what you're talking about when you do talk. But don't surround them with your theology. And if they need to say things that you know aren't quite theologically accurate, don't feel like you need to defend God. And don't feel like you need to sell Christianity. And if they temporarily lose their faith, still surround them with your love. Don't try to correct them and build them up. You can't do it. And if they go into a tailspin, just hang on to their tail and ride it through with them, and that's all you can do. God can do other things, but we can't. Our words, our attempts to fix, simply further damage people. Let's stand. This morning, I, I want to send out this invitation. The altar is going to be open, but I especially want to target the people that I have been feeling for since Wednesday. I encourage you to come forward and pray the Job's Prayer with, with uh, some of the prayer team ministry here this morning. Father, I thank you, Lord God, that no matter how far we run and no matter how low we sink and no matter how far we push away, Lord God, and no matter how loud we scream, God, we can't scare you off, we can't push you off, we can't run from you, we can't go to some extreme where you're not already there waiting for us, God. I thank you, God, that you're bigger than our theology and you're bigger than our normal apparatus of thinking, Lord. I thank you, God, that you are able in the most nightmare situations to be there. Lord, I, I, if there are those here this morning that this message has even further confused about some things, I pray, God, that you'd give them a peace. Maybe not having to explain it all, because I'm talking about what can't be explained, Lord, but bring peace and security to their minds. And for those who are in this situation where they have no peace and no understanding and nothing seems clear, God, I pray that they'd ha- feel permission from you to know that it's not their fault. Other people who are far more wicked prosper. You don't have any of these problems. It's not about them, Lord God. And give them permission to come and speak to you as Job spoke to you and say what is right about you because it comes from their heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.